0: Uh, We've been in this uh, little series going 70s for the holidays, and I don't mean going 70 years of age or turning 70, although we did have somebody in our church just turned 70 or is turning 70 on Wednesday. Uh, This is uh, Tom Mulcahy from the First Service. Some of you might know him. Check out the plaid pants and the white shoes. Now, some of you are like, yeah, that's really appealing. Plaid is making a comeback, just like beards have made a Comeback which is really sad to me since I can't grow a beard. But I digress. Things just kind of go through phases. Fashions will change, like uh, the next picture. This is Darlene Kirchner rocking the horned rim glasses. Things change. Fashions change. Times change. Like shag carpet. How many of y'all grew up with some shag carpet? Okay, lots of us. Now, apparently, shag carpet's making a comeback, like plaid pants. No, I'm not kidding. Anybody, what? What is wrong with you people? I love shag carpet. Anybody here have shag carpet in their... Woo! That's, progressives, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, shag carpet kind of saw it today because it's it's wonderful. Here's why it's appealing. It feels real good on your bare feet. It's just, you know, shaggy and fluffy and, and you kind of want to lay on it. And in fact, in the 70s, we got, I think we got another picture here in the 70s Bible reading made a comeback because people just want to lay on shag carpet all day long and just just kind of read the Bible so shag is good it feels good but the problem is since it feels good on your bare body or your which I shouldn't say that but yeah you know I mean if you were there in the 70s okay that was part of it and uh, you were walking around on and on your bare hey some of you are laughing because you were there in the 70s was like yeah that's why I like the shag carpet okay so when you spend a couple of years on the shag carpet the shag gets kind of nasty, and that's why it kind of left the scene. Now, we still have carpet, and we still have flooring, but the shag has pretty much disappeared from the floor. And So here's the question. The question is, okay, is Jesus kind of like the shag of Christmas, or put a little bit differently, is he, is he sort of the optional extra, or the whole uh, narrative of Christ's coming? Because here's what the surveys are indicating. The surveys are indicating that more and more people are looking at Christmas as not a Christian holiday. This is true. As the years progress, more and more people are just looking at Christmas as Christmas, a time for joy, a time for peace, but not particularly a Christian holiday. And more and more people are okay with the secularization of Christmas. And so my question, put a little bit differently, would be, can we take the the sentimentality of the uh, birth narrative of Jesus and just kind of put that onto other stories of love and kindness and brotherhood and gift-giving and peace. Is the biblical story of the birth of Jesus kind of just part of the overall shag? Now, here's here's where I'm coming from, just in case you're wondering. This shouldn't surprise you, but I, I would really maintain that if the birth of Jesus Christ is only a sentimental story to you that you, you don't understand Christmas. In fact, I wouldn't go so far as to say that everything else except for the birth of Christ is the shag. Now this morning what we're going to do is we're going to go to one of the more familiar passages in all of the Bible. It's one of the most familiar passages with regards to the Christmas narrative that you're going to find in the Bible. It's one of those stories that when you read it, you just feel kind of sentimental. And a lot of people feel sentimental because, well, when you have angels announcing good news, a great joy that's for all people, it just feels very warm and inclusive and and wonderful. And then when you throw in words like baby and manger and shepherds and all, it just, you feel sentimental. And so some people, they'll hear the story and they think of it purely as sentimental that that's just the magic of Christmas, and magic can be replaced by other magic. And so for some people, the magic of Christmas can be somehow equated with candles in shop windows, gifts under the tree, songs about Rudolph, letters to Santa, movies like Frozen 2, all of these kinds of things. And it's not that anybody here is opposed to all of the shag. Again, the shag feels good to the feet of our souls. We've got some shag in here. And I'm really glad. We've got, you know, shiny stuff. We've got the table decoration. We've got the garland. We've got the lights. We've got the trees. And I love it. We love the fluff. It's not a bad thing if you like fluff. In our family, we, we've we got some fluff. We've got a... It's the, the dog's name is Lola. We've got a picture of this. This is... That's one of our our two dogs, Lola, and I think we got another picture of her. That's her just kind of laying at the back door, and if she looks kind of large to you, it's true. She's fat and fluffy. In fact, we talk about her all the time. Gina was at school one day. I had to tell this story. She was at a UIL event, and she was on the phone, and she was talking about how fat she is, and somebody else said, "Yeah," and she's so fat, and all these other people are looking at Gina like, "What? You're so mean, the meanest teacher ever." No, we're talking about our dog. Okay, she's just fluffy. And we love it, and and we like to wipe our feet on her and all of these things, because that's why she's at the back door. But anyways, I digress. If you love fluff, I love fluff, we all love fluff, there's fluff around. The problem comes when we can't separate what's foundational from what's fluff. When it comes to the birth of Jesus Christ, I would say he's not only is he not the shag, he's not even the flooring you would say he's not even the foundation. If you want to press really far, he's the cornerstone of the whole deal. And I'm going to kind of give away a little bit before we get there, but I would say a lot of the things that make us feel so warm and fuzzy around Christmas are these wonderful ideas of world peace and international peace and the end of war and and an internal peace and a placidity of soul and, and just a, a centeredness of being. These are really, really good things. And this time of the year brings attention to those sorts of things. It's just that those sorts of things flow from one place. Not from sentimental stories, but from the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ and the implications of that for your life and for mine. Okay, with that, we're going to go ahead and turn our attention to this story. This is found over in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. You've probably heard this story before, but we're going to read it once again. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Starting with verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, talking to the shepherds in the field, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to people on whom his favor rests. May God bless the reading his word. You may be seated. Now of all the passages in the Bible, this is one of the more familiar passages. And some of you, you're so familiar with it. As I was reading it, in your minds, you were correcting me. Uh, because especially when you get to verse 14, it's not, no, no, no. It's not glory to God in the highest. That it's glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill to men. Ernest, if the King James Version was good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for you. Uh, we'll get into some translation differences in just a second. But this is a familiar text. People are familiar with it. In fact, even when people don't know where it's found, they know the story. And even when people don't know that this story is even found in the Bible, they still are familiar with the story. The question is, okay, what is this peace on earth that Jesus was born to bring? That's our question. And as we answer that question, it's going to help us to cut through the shag and see a little bit more what is the cornerstone of this whole deal. How does the Bible, the New Testament in particular, interpret the peace on earth? This morning what we're going to do is we're going to stay right in the birth narratives. We're going to stay actually in the Gospel of Luke. And as we come to understand the peace on earth that Jesus was born to bring, we're going to grow in our appreciation. And hopefully as we grow in our appreciation for what was given, we will also grow in our execution of experiencing and giving peace. So again, here's the question. What is the peace on earth that Jesus Christ was born to bring? Let's talk about what it is not because that's the fluff. Let's get rid of the fluff first. What what was not meant by peace on earth when the angels announced the birth of Jesus? Well, the first thing that you need to understand is that peace on earth in the book of Luke as the angels are announcing it is not primarily global peace, world peace, international peace, or political peace. That's not what's intended. Jesus Christ was not born primarily to put an end to war. If that was the whole purpose, we're a little disappointed because if you look back over the last 2,000 years, there's been a lot of war and a lot of bloodshed, tremendous atrocity. Jesus did not understand his birth as being the key to ending war or that being the primary purpose. It's not that God is for war. Of course, he's against war and he's against poverty and disease and sickness and all of these things. But let's have some balance in terms of our understanding. You go to another place in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 21, verses 9 through 10, and the disciples ask Jesus, what are the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus says, when you hear of wars and disturbances, some translations, rumors of wars or tumults uh, or uprisings, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and the like, do not be disturbed. Do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus is saying you should never expect the end of international conflict. Jesus is letting us know, he's teaching very clearly that my birth, my coming into the world wasn't going to bring about political or international peace. If anything, things are going to get even worse before I come again. It's the second coming that ends all wars, not the first. Now again, this is not to say that there aren't implications for the gospel, that Jesus isn't concerned about you and me helping to bring peace to situations, whether they be domestic situations, or community situations or international situations, of course, as people of peace, we're going to bring peace. Just understand this. When the angels make this announcement, peace on earth, to people on whom his favor rests, they're not thinking primarily about political peace or international peace. Jesus doesn't expect that. So if you're saying, okay, if peace on earth isn't world peace or global peace, then what is it? Some people have guessed, well, maybe he's just talking about spiritual peace. After all, Jesus is a spiritual leader. He's going to bring spiritual peace. And when people talk about spiritual peace, here's what most people mean. Most people mean kind of a subjective peace, an internal peace, an internal placidity of soul, kind of like Jesus is going to give you more peace than a Deepak Chopra conference. Jesus is going to give you more internal peace than your new Peloton bike and... And the endorphin high that you get from it. What people are talking about is just an internal balance. And I don't want to diminish that that is, in fact, what comes from the peace that he brings. But that's not the peace that the angels are talking about. Back to Luke. This is kind of interesting. In Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, Jesus says, Do you suppose I came to grant peace on earth? To which most of us are saying, well, yeah, actually... Because the angels just announced peace on earth. Well, obviously, Jesus is saying, this is not the kind of peace that I came to bring. And he makes it clear, the peace on earth that he did not come to bring. He says, I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, to which none of us are really surprised. But I digress. Um, here's the point. Okay, I'm, I'm just kidding. Look, my wife is sitting next to her mother-in-law, and it works out fine. Really. Uh, okay. All right. I, I want to be. I want to be even more careful with this one than I just was. Okay. Um, no, really, they get along great. Um, when Jesus says, "Yeah, I'm going to bring division," he certainly is not communicating. I'm going to bring international division. That when I come, it's going to cause nation to rise up against nation. He's not talking about international disturbance. Jesus did not imply, even, that his coming was going to create religious wars. When people go to war in the name of Jesus Christ, they are going to war in his name in vain. You know what it is to go towards someone To do something in vain or to take someone's name in vain is to take their name and leverage it for your own particular agenda, but it has nothing to do with his. That's what it is, to take someone's name in vain, to take his authority and attach it to your own agenda and somehow justify yourself religiously with regards to a war that isn't fundamentally a religious war but a political one. Jesus is saying, no, 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 we don't take God's name in vain and attach my, don't attach my name to your political wars. Let me give you an example of this. Um, For the longest time in Ireland, of course, there was this friction war between Protestants and Catholics. And you can go back in Europe and see this sort of war going back and forth in in different ways on different fronts. But there's a story of this Irishman who jumps out from from around the corner, has a gun in his hand, and holds the gun to another man's head. And he asks this man, Are you Protestant or Catholic? And the man responds, I'm, I'm not Protestant nor am I Catholic. I'm an atheist. And the man says, okay, okay, fine. But what kind of an atheist are you? Are you a Catholic atheist or a <laughs> Protestant atheist? And the, it's a joke, but it kind of illustrates the point that war had nothing to do with religion or Christianity. That is entirely a political war. Jesus is not insinuating, he's not, there's not even an implication here that his entrance into the world is going to necessarily rightly produce more international friction. What he is teaching is that when Jesus comes in your life, when Jesus steps into the middle of your family and in your relationship, sometimes there's going to be disturbance. That happens. The things get stirred up. They don't get settled down. We see this in the Middle East. In the Middle East, in Muslim nations, if you come to faith in Christ, your family may reject you. They'll ostracize you. They might turn you into the authorities, throw you into prison. Uh, well, of course, we're not living in the Middle East. What happens here is you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and when Christ comes into your life, it might disturb some friendships. It might disturb the equilibrium that you've reached as a couple. When you become a Christian, sometimes people say, Hey, you're not the same person you used to be, and I don't like hanging out with you anymore. I feel guilty being around you. Or or I I really wish you wouldn't be talking about Jesus all the time and a relationship with him and how I need to repent and all of the rest. Sometimes Jesus steps into the picture and then there's a disturbance. I was talking to someone recently about how when she came to faith, and this is a very, very common story. Someone comes to faith and they start going this way with Jesus and the person who isn't in relationship with Jesus kind of goes in an opposite direction. That's what will happen when you develop a relationship with Jesus as your primary relationship, but the other person doesn't. Sometimes that just kind of happens. Things get stirred up. Certainly things get stirred up in your own life. When Jesus comes into your life, your life is not your own anymore. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, which they're one and the same, you can't say, oh, well, he's just Savior, but he's not Lord. Jesus can't not be Jesus. He's fully who he is. And so... When you have Jesus in your life, it's not like putting an add-on to the back of your house so that the neighbors have a place to stay if they're having a fight or, or so that your in-laws will have more room to stay when they come and visit for the holidays. When Jesus comes into your life, into the home of your life, it's like you turn over the deed and the keys to them. The, Jesus is the owner, and now you're just his guest. He lets you stay in the house, but the problem is, when Jesus comes in, it's a constant remodel. You ever been in the middle of a remodel? It's always a disturbance. He's redoing things. And maybe he's going to be doing things in the house of your life that you wouldn't have anticipated or even wanted he comes in, cleans out the skeletons from your closet, comes in, and now the front door is open to strangers all the time. And that's kind of an adjustment. And then, of course, he messes around with what goes on in the bedroom and in the entertainment room and in the living room and all the rest. And so your life is constantly in a certain amount of turmoil because your life is no longer your own. Jesus lets us know you've got to count the cost because here's the thing. When I step into your life, it's not going to be the same and it's not going to be under your control, and there's going to be a certain amount of upheaval. There's going to be change. Now, I'm not saying that there's not an internal peace, but the reality is sometimes Jesus steps in and things get a little harder than you thought they were going to be. And Jesus is saying, I'm not doing a bait and switch on you. There's a cost that you have to count. When you come to me, take up your cross and follow me. This is a death to yourself. I'm not going to tell you about the cross after you become a Christian and pray some little prayer. I'm telling you up front, there's change that's going to happen. It's going to to come to your life. So the peace that Jesus brings is not primarily international, political, world peace. And it's not just an internal placidity of spirit as if Jesus is some Hindu, Buddhist guru of some sort. Some people say, okay, if it's not that, maybe the peace that Jesus is talking about is just symbolic or metaphorical because we all like peace. It's not just pie-in-the-sky peace. And we know that's not the case because Jesus says, the angels say, this is peace on earth. This is up there that's come down to you. This is a peace that you can have now, right here and now, not one day later. We're not talking about Platonic ideals or even something that may happen in the future. We're talking about a peace that has come to you now on earth that you can respond to now and can have now. Very specific, very objective, very real. So if the peace the angels announce isn't political, it's not you know, internal, of mind, of, of mental state, and if it's not primarily some sort of mystical, um, metaphorical, symbolic peace, what in the world is it? Well, to get to the heart of this, I want to direct your attention to two passages right here in the, in the Christmas narrative. Just back up a few verses to the end of Luke chapter 1, and there's this scene where Zacharias has his mouth open. God has closed his mouth because Zacharias laughs when God tells him, you're going to be the father of this son, John the Baptist, who's going to come before the Messiah. And now God has miraculously loosened his tongue, now he can speak, and here's what Zacharias says, to his boy who's still in the womb, prophetically he announces this, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now here Zacharias is talking about something objective. It's the, it's the way, the way of peace. And if you're interpreting this carefully, you see that the way of peace is equated with this knowledge of salvation that God gives to his people by his tender mercy, the forgiveness of their sins. What's the way of peace for Zacharias? Here it is. It's salvation. It's salvation that God gives. It's salvation God gives to his people as a gift. His unmarried favor comes upon people. The forgiveness of sins. That's the way of peace. Peace. And in case we're not clear enough about this, you go to the next chapter and you read about glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Two people on whom his favor, his unmerited favor rests. Now, again, I know some of you, you're thinking, okay, King James Version, good enough for Jesus, ought to be good enough for you. It's certainly good enough for Charlie Brown. Why do we have to get away from the King James? Okay, listen, you know, the, the old King James Version, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Here's here's why. I love the King James Version, I'm not kidding you. It is a great translation. It's the One of the reasons I love it is it's the easiest to memorize. If you're having a hard time memorizing Scripture, go to the King James and say, really? Yeah, there's a cadence and a rhythm and the commas. It's just a beautiful translation. And once you memorize something in the King James, it's hard to learn it in any other translation. It is a great translation. The best translation available 400 years ago. It's the best translation available to the text that was available back in 1611. Here's the problem it's a minor issue. Over the last 400 and something years, we have discovered so many more Greek texts, early dated, authentic Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And so there are these people who study these manuscripts that they just, you know, they go in, in little holes. And they, you know, they get get up their flashlights and they study the little details. Okay, and they say this is this is how it was. Here's what scholars now understand: that one letter in this verse was dropped. It used to be uh, anthropoi Eudoxius, and somehow along the way it became anthropoi Eudoxia. The S was dropped. Very small thing, but that changes the translation from. Original genitive to nominative. Okay, so here here's the deal. Making a long story short. King James Version is a great translation. Just the text that it's based on is not as good at this particular point. Making a long story short, here's what Zacharias communicates. Here's what the angels announce in terms of the gospel, the good news. There was ill will. And now there is the possibility and the reality, because of the coming of Jesus Christ, goodwill between God and people. The angels announce, and the peace that Zacharias talks about is not an international peace, it's not a global peace, it's not just an internal peace, it's not a metaphorical peace. The peace that comes because of the coming of Jesus Christ is a peace between God and us. That specifically is the peace. This is the peace that is solid. It's unchangeable. It's not malleable. It's solid. It's unyielding. It's the peace that's sung about in Hark the Herald Angel Sing. Uh, Hark the Herald Angel Sing It's the Wesleyan hymn. Peace on Earth and Mercy Mild, God and Sinners Reconciled. Do you remember that part, part? That's what it is. The peace of God is God's mild mercy. The the peace on Earth is the for forgiveness that reconciles sinners to God. And when that peace comes, it's absolute. And what I mean is, it's not progressive. It's done. Let's go to uh, Romans chapter 15, that, that passage that Alan read just a little bit earlier during the worship portion. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have been justified, have been, accomplished fact. You're standing as if you have already been forgiven, just as if I'd never sinned. That's how complete and utter the grace is that has come into your life. It's complete and utter forgiveness. And when I say it's absolute, here's what I mean. You can't be kind of forgiven. You either are forgiven or you're not. If you're 50% forgiven, you're not forgiven. If you have some of God's favor, you don't have His favor. You're either standing with God and God is standing with you or you're not. You're not kind of in or kind of out. The forgiveness that God gives is complete. The reconciliation that He gives us with Him is total. The grace that has come into your life is unadulterated. It is pure. God has come Down into your life and into my life wholeheartedly without reservation. And here I stand in relationship with me and with him. And he stands in relationship with me. Here's the good news. Okay, the good news in the New Testament is not one day you're going to die and you're going to get into heaven because of what Jesus did. That's all true. That's true. But the good news is not just one day when you die, you can get to heaven. The good news that the angels announce, and this is consistent throughout the Gospels, the good news that the angels announce is up there has come down here. God has moved in, and He wants to move in with you. There can be peace with God right now. And when up there comes down here, into your life, into your family, into your community, of course everything is going to change. The peace on earth that is absolute is the forgiveness that God gives us for our sins. It is our reconciliation with God. It is a relationship with God that in spite of the fact that I'm a sinner and I've fallen short, a holy, holy, holy God can now have a relationship with me and live right within my heart and life. That's the good news. And of course one day I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But I don't have to wait to have a relationship with God until after I die. And that's not the primary point. The primary point is not I'm going from down here to up there. The primary point is he's already come from up there to down here. And you can have a relationship with God right now, right where you are, and it will change everything because he's come to earth. That's good news. So if you're kind of thinking, you know, I think I need a change in my life. I think I need some liberation. I think I need some joy. I think I need Christ in the middle of the hole in my heart so that my family will be changed for the better. The good news is you can have that because he's come. That's the good news. Now, in, in a few weeks, actually, you know, about another month, second Wednesday in January, I'm going to be teaching a class on Wednesday nights from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock. The King Jesus Gospel, you might want to get in on that. But for now, just suffice it to say, when the Prince of Peace comes to you and comes to me, of course there's going to be outworking of this peace. If you receive the peace of God and the Prince of Peace steps into your life, of course there's going to be some changes. A couple of practical changes. One is, you're going to grow in your experience of peace. And two is, you're going to grow as a peacemaker. Those things are progressive because of the absolute peace that has already been given to you. So even though we just said earlier the peace that has come to earth is not primarily political peace or international peace or peace between people, and it's not primarily just an internal peace, when you get the absolute peace of God in your life, you are going to grow in terms of your internal peace, and you are going to grow into being a peacemaker just like Jesus was a peacemaker. There are implications for his coming. But it happens, kind of gradually, but it's only because you've been changed by the presence of God who's come into your life because of the peace that was made. Let me put it to you like this. I, I did some shopping last week, uh, which meant I Googled things. And uh, I, I was reminded that, that great gifts this time of the year have to do with sports memorabilia. You know what sports memorabilia are? It, it, it's, it's old stuff that really would otherwise be worthless. But it was worn by somebody famous and special. Okay, that's what sports memorabilia is. Everything changes about something normal because something or someone super normal has worn it or put it on. I I thought this was interesting. The uh, 1920 baseball jersey of Babe Ruth sold for $4.415 million. Isn't that amazing? And I got to thinking, now wait a second, what if we could find the original manger? You know, the feeding, you know, really the feeding trough that Jesus was placed in for one night. How much do you think that would be worth? Really? I bet we could find somebody to pay more than 4.145 million dollars. I bet there'd be somebody paying 10 times that much. 100 million dollars? I wouldn't be surprised. And then I got to thinking, wow, what if Jesus, Almighty God, comes from up there, down here, and indwells you permanently. Does that change anything? And if your answer is no, you don't understand the gospel. Up there has come down here into your life. Jesus has taken up residence in you permanently permanently. You have been given the spirit of Christ. You've invited him into your heart. Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, is within you. And we would say, well, yeah, okay, the Prince of Peace indwells me, but that doesn't make any difference. Of course it makes a difference. It ought to make all the difference in the world. Two things. One, you should be growing in your experience of peace. Let me put it to you like this. I uh, and. Dennis Keller was in the first service. He's not back here, but Dennis is a person I've had a relationship with for over a decade. He was a member here for a long time, and he's been out at Sun City for the last seven-plus years as a pastor in Sun City. Well, he was diagnosed not too long ago with Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a disease of the central nervous system, and eventually, every all your motor function eventually shuts down, including your breathing. It's not good. He gets this diagnosis, of course that's bad, loss of health. And then on top of that, he's told by the people who employ him, you can't be pastor here because you have Lou Gehrig's disease. So there's loss of employment. But it's not just employment, it's calling, because he feels called a pastor. In particular, what he loves doing is Stephen ministry. And so there's also loss of community, the community of which he's been a part of for a long time. So you, you get the picture, loss of Health, loss of employment, loss of place, loss of ministry. Death just kind of closes in from all directions sometimes. So I called him. I called him Wednesday afternoon just to touch base with him. And he's crying. He's crying on the other end of the line. And he explains to me, I'm not crying anything other than tears of joy. And this is legit. He says, I've just been with Jesus. And just been, he's hes weeping. He's like, I've just been overwhelmed by the love of God and by the love of God's people. And I'm thinking, I called it a bad time, didn't I? You know, and we just, because I interrupted that. And then we have a great conversation for another 15 minutes and it's beautiful and it's real. And I'm thinking, that's the peace that surpasses understanding. It's talked about over in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. There's a peace that surpasses understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why do we need this peace? Where's this peace come from? Well, this peace comes from God. It comes from God in your life. Almighty God having a relationship with you and being eternally yours. Sometimes you don't know how much that means until you have nothing else. Until you have nothing else but God, you don't always recognize that God is actually enough. Why do we need the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds? Well, sometimes it's because we're in disturbing situations. Sometimes death comes at us, or bad health, or divorce, or loss of community, or loss of reputation, and on and on and on. Sometimes we need to be guarded. But sometimes we need that peace to guard our hearts and minds because it's Jesus who leads us into non-peaceful situations. You say, well, why would Jesus do that? Because this is the way God rolls. God is a giver. That's what it means to love. Jesus, in being a peacemaking Christ, has this, uh, this, this mindset Of I'm not concerned about my own peace, I'm concerned about the peace of other people. And that's why I'm not at peace until I've entered into the suffering and difficulty of other people so as to bring them peace. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is sweating great drops of blood. You think he's at peace? Why does he do this? Because he won't rest until he has brought the peace that he came to give. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him, but he also is restless until we find our rest in him. And so there's sort of a restlessness that says, I've got to enter into the suffering and difficulty of other people to bring them the peace that is guarding my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. This is why Jesus doesn't feel at odds with himself saying, take up your cross and follow me. Well, why would you expect me to do that? Because Jesus gives a peace unlike any other peace that anyone can find apart from following Christ. And that brings us to the the place I want us to end up on and that is when you know this objective peace between you and God and it changes your life and it changes your heart and it changes your outlook when you receive that objective peace and you have this peace that guards your heart and it guards your mind here's what happens. You become more and more consistently a peacemaker. You enter into the unrest and disturbance of other people so as to bring peace because that's exactly how God rolls. That's exactly the kind of peacemaker that Jesus was. That's why he says, blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called the sons of God, the children of God. Of course that's the case. Jesus was that kind of a peacemaker. Getting back to Dennis, for example. Here's Dennis, Lou Gehrig's disease, it's already showing in his motor function. And what he wants to do more than anything else is continue in Stephen ministry. You know why? Because when you've received the peace of God, you're desperate to bring it to other people. Why is it that Christians enter into fields like counseling? Why is it that we are still interested in helping heal marriages or, or or bring the gospel to bear in practical ways in families? Or why is it that we are still interested in international peace and all the rest? Well, here's why. Because Jesus is a peacemaker. We don't do what we do in terms of making peace with people or helping people simply because we're trying to establish some utopian community. It hasn't happened in the last 2,000 years. It's probably not going to happen until Christ comes again. But here's why we do what we do in terms of making peace. Because the peacemaker has taken up residence in you. It's, it is that simple. As a church, we do have a heart for at-risk kids, and we're wanting to grow in in terms of ministering to children and families from hard places. One of the things we've been doing year after year after year is this whole angel tree ministry where we just give gifts showing God's love in a practical way to kids who have one or two parents that are incarcerated. It's a beautiful thing. Why do we do this? We can't help it. Why is it that God lays it on some people's hearts to adopt? Or to foster. It's not because I think that in some way, or any of us think that in some way, we're going to change the entire world. Here's what lies at the heart of these kinds of movements. I know the peace of God. It has to work out in some way. Why is it that we do homeless ministry? Why is it that people go into prisons? What is, why is it that we only, that we're not only concerned about the low hanging fruit of people jumping from one church to another? Why is it that we would invest in someone that seems so very distant? Why is it that we take on these extraordinarily difficult tasks? Because the peace of God has to work out from your life. Some of you know that Gene and I were were interested in the fostering. And one of the things we learned when we were going through the foster care training is don't do it if you're in the midst of a major life transition, like the death of a spouse or a move to a new community or empty nesting. We didn't know what a big transition empty nesting was. They said, give it a year. That means like basically nine months from now. Well, I don't know if we're going to wait that long, but we're waiting. And I'll tell you this. Whenever I'm upstairs in that room where we've already got a bunk bed set up and we're going to either give respite care to foster or foster some kids, whatever, I think about those kids who need someone. I don't know what the ministry is that God has given to you. I don't know who it is that God has brought into your life or who God is bringing into your life. But if the Prince of Peace has come, And taken up residence in you. You're going to take practical steps to bring peace. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for having come from up there to down here over the Son whom you sent. Through him and ultimately over his broken body and shed blood. We thank you for that peace that we can have with you that is absolute and total through Christ Jesus. But Lord, as we remember the core, the the cornerstone of Christmas, and as we enjoy all the fluff that comes with it, help us as we think about the cornerstone that the only reason we experience true, deep, abiding peace within that guards our hearts and minds, the only reason we are... Sent out into the world is because you came into the world for the likes of us. You did what was necessary for the likes of us. You were restless until we could find our rest in you. So, Father, as we as we think about the grace that has been given and the forgiveness that has been given and the absolute peace that has been granted to us only by your merciful good favor, I pray that whatever struggles we're going through, there would be that peace that guards our hearts and minds. And that we would also, by your peace, be transformed into makers of peace. That we would enter into the difficulties and sufferings of others so as to bring peace. Not just because it's the sentiment of the month, but because there is something solid at the core of who we are, or rather someone solid at the core of who we are. That we cannot help but be peacemakers. Or any good thing that we ever do, whether it's angel tree or adoption or fostering or just going the extra mile for a student or for a neighbor or for a homeless person or someone who doesn't know the gospel, whatever it is, every time we go the extra mile, we know that we cannot take credit for any of it. It's only your gospel that changes us. It's the fact that you have come smack dab into the middle of our lives and are rearranging them. May we continue to cooperate with the reality of your presence in us on earth. And may there be peace. We pray all of this in Christ's blessed holy name. Amen.